Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we all probably have heard a breaking story on a major station which has the subject line something like this. There has been another senseless attack in Winnipeg or another senseless murder committed tonight in the North End. Everything is classified with those words, another senseless. It's either another senseless crime or another senseless act, or it's shocking. It, it shook the neighborhood. It shook the world. We have all heard this on the news, and it seems like this is one of those overused phrases, as you might say. People use it to express their horror and shock. How could something like this happen? It just seems so senseless. But as we read from our catechism this afternoon, there's nothing surprising or shocking about people's behavior. Everyone knows that there's trouble in humanity. Most would agree that there are problems about people or with people. But we're not just to understand that these are simply problems. It's a matter of understanding where the problems lie and how we deal with the problem. The Bible calls that problem sin. How do you know your sins and miseries? That's not a theoretical question. It's not saying, oh yes, there's a problem with people. It's not just concerned about sin in general. It's asking if you know where your problem is. It's your sins and your misery that are being addressed. And our catechism says that the problem lies deeply within all of us. And it's only the brokenhearted who have that knowledge. So these beautiful truths cannot be understood apart from what our catechism is speaking about, which is a true knowledge of sin. In fact, what got Luther all upset when he nailed the 95 Theses uh, on October 31, 1517, when he nailed those on the, uh, the door of the uh, Castleburg, uh, of, of uh, Wittenberg Castle, pardon me, he said that the church no longer preached repentance from sin, but gave false assurance through indulgences. And he, he says, quote, in that very first article, when our master and Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The recognition of sin, said Luther, is the beginning of salvation. And that's the direction that our catechism is pointing to us, uh, pointing us this afternoon. So hear the word of the Lord under the, the theme from 1 Timothy 1. We can only have true comfort by knowing our sin through the law. We'll look at this with two points. First of all, the wrong use of the law, and then looking at the right use of the law. So first of all, the wrong use of the law. When Paul wrote these words to Timothy, it's important to know the purpose of them. Its, a, its purpose was to warn them about false teachers that had come into the church. Verse 3 brings that out. It says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different 
doctrine. The opening of this letter already lays it out. There were some in the midst who had been teaching a different doctrine. The word that Paul uses for this in the Greek is the long word heterodiscalane. That's where we get the word heterodoxy from. What is heterodoxy? Well, heterodoxy is that which is opposed to orthodoxy. Who were these heterodox teachers in the Ephesus church or the Ephesian church? Well, Paul mentions two men, Hymenius and Philetus, whose teaching, Paul said, had spread like cancer. They were claiming that the resurrection had already occurred and that there was no future one. Others were teaching a very strict form of of asceticism. And for those who don't know what asceticism is, it's a way of life where one completely renounces any kind of social contact or any form of comfort. If you are an ascetic, it means you are a hermit. You you lead a life of severe self-denial. And we find those kind of people mentioned, actually, later on in this letter in chapter 4. They believe that marriage and the eating of meat were evil. And believing this, they were forbidding some in the church from doing this. Now, why were there some teachers? What were, what, what were some of these teachers saying? Well, in this chapter, we see that they were obsessed with fables and genealogies. Fables are literally myths. They were Jewish fables, legends, and fables of antiquity, tales written in the past that had really nothing to do with what was written in the Bible. There were two ancient texts that shed some light on what Paul was talking about. One is entitled, The Book of Jubilees, written about 125 BC. And another was written after 70 AD called The Biblical Antiquities of Philo. These books interpret the Old Testament from a a Pharisee's point of view. Uh, The Book of Jubilees divides history into Uh, Jubilees, uh, periods of uh, 49 years, and asserts the uniqueness of Israel among the nations. And the other book, uh, The Biblical Antiquities of Philo, is another retelling of history from the creation of Adam to the death of Saul. And much of this teaching was, was guesswork, the product of a lively imagination as they embellished history and then retold Uh, these genealogies in a very fabulous way. So it's no wonder that Paul wrote to Timothy to beware of this. He'd already warned the Ephesians elders. As you may recall in Acts chapter 20, where he said, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw others along with them. We may think that we don't face that same kind of danger today, but we do. The myths and endless genealogies of today are extra-biblical texts, which are often treated the same as the authority of Scripture. Think of the cults. You know, you got the Book of Mormon. Or the Apocrypha 
if it gets treated the same as the rest of the Bible. There's a lot of emphasis today on the so-called gospel according to Thomas, which receives a lot of emphasis in Jesus' seminars, even though it has no part in the, in the canon of Scripture. It was written approximately 200 years after the four gospels were written. And another myth is the Bible Code, another book which rearranges the letters of Genesis and claims to decipher uh, them in order to predict world events. And some people have said, well, this, this predicted things like the Gulf War and the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, all according to this code of the Bible. There are serious issues with things like this. Many discussions about the end times also fall into this category. Even if they're not myths and genealogies, some of them are at least endless. Some people seem to run from their handbooks of Bible prophecy every time something happens in the Middle East, hoping to figure out where we were on the timeline to eternity. And usually they're asking the wrong questions and getting the wrong answers. These are just a few examples of some of the uh, creative interpretations of the Bible. But Paul says here in verses 6 and 7, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Notice that they call themselves teachers of the law. That's the word that's used in the Gospels to describe men who would use a a Jewish form of interpretation. But they strayed. Uh, The image here is moving farther and farther away from a certain point. That's that's the way that we understand this term. Uh, It's like something our children would understand. If you throw a stick into a slow-moving stream or river, say you dropped it from a bridge on the one side, and then looked on the other side where the water was flowing, you'd see that stick drifting away. And that's the, that's the word picture that, that the apostle is giving here. They've strayed, but they've also turned aside to idle talk as their words are meaningless. And again, there is an image in this world. Paul is placing their words into the category of idolatry and paganism. It's the idea of godless chatter. All these characteristics make a timeless portrait of a false teacher. Not to make us very suspicious when certain individuals in the church hold to error and are very dogmatic about it. This also speaks a word, of a, caution to, a word of caution to us, congregation. Take, for instance, various Bible studies that we can have within our churches. We, we need to be very careful when it comes to studying the, the Bible. There's, there's the importance of interpreting Scripture properly. There's the matter of reading the right materials in order to, 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 be, to grow in our knowledge. All of these things come into play when we're speaking of understanding a passage, think of the, the right 
uh, books to choose. You know, not all commentaries are the same. Some might be written by uh, a, a liberal theologian. We can't rely on, on men who don't understand the passage properly. Let's not, think, let's not think for a minute that we can't be affected by that because I'm sure we all know of certain ministers or theologians who started out well, who were conservative, but they drifted away. Just the way that this passage says. We always need to be on guard. Beware of the sticks that fall into the water and are drifting away because you will drift along with them if you listen. Beware of those with their godless chatter who can go on and on with their words but make no sense and stray away from the meaning of the scriptures because there's nothing more sure than the authority of the Bible. There's a reason why we're commanded not to be led astray by such false teachers. We see that in verse 4. It says that these kind of discussions of fables and endless genealogies cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith. Not every religious discussion is beneficial. Some topics which lead to debates about ancient religious texts, end times, or heretical dogma not addressed in the Bible. This is what's so wonderful about Scripture. There's not a single heresy found in the Bible that hasn't taken some shape or form within the church, in church history, or even today. This was not a pie-in-the-sky problem in Ephesus. God wants us to be filled with Scripture, filled with the truth. And there's another reason why we're commanded not to be led astray by false teachers. Paul says that they have turned aside to idle talk, to vain discussion. They've lost their theological bearings. The more they deviate, the more tedious and tendentious their doctrine becomes. And like Galatians, Paul attacked false teaching because the gospel is at stake. So heterodoxy is a waste of time, so often the problem. And therefore, there's much meaningly, much meaningless discussion on places like the internet where people can engage in wearisome and unproductive dialogues. And the same is true at, at uh, some seminaries and divinity schools, where scholars are almost on this perpetual quest for the novelty. They want something new. But some religious matters are not even worth taking the time to argue. There's a warning for us not to major on the minors. And those who want to be Dogmatics, dogmatic must be sure that they have the right dogma. Paul says the false teachers in Ephesus do not lack conviction. Their teaching is full of what he calls uh, confident assertions. And yet as verse 7 says, Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about what, which make their confident assertions. It's a very dangerous combination. Speaking without understanding what you're saying. In other words, error can, can be taught with as much conviction 
is as the truth. In fact, the more argumentative someone is about a theological issue, the more likely he or she will be spiritually unbalanced. But how about us today? Do we have a hunger for the word? Do we want to be taught sound doctrine? Or do most of us have no clue as to what these dangers are? Do we have a hankering for the latest fad in theology? The unreliable hodgepodge of the theological world. Let's be very careful that we don't get sucked in because the dangers are always there for us. And it will be to our detriment as the church. Well, that brings us to what we see here secondly within this passage. And that is, if there's the wrong use of the law, well, then there's the, there has to be the proper use, the right use. What is the purpose of the law? Well, that's what the false teachers had failed to see. They desired to be teachers of the law and claimed to have the right interpretation of the law of Moses from the Old Testament. However, they were missing the point. That's why Paul says in verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And there's a bit of a wordplay here. Kind of like saying we all know that the law is an excellent thing, provided that we see it that way. An excellent thing. What is the proper use of the law? Well, that's something that the Reformation taught us. The Reformers talked about three uses of the law. One is to show sinners their sin. Martin Luther in his lectures in Galatians wrote that the law shows sinners their sin, so, as he says, so that they live by the recognition of the sin, may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace. The second use of the law is, the, uh, is used in the civil realm to restrain wrongdoers. That's how the law is useful to society. It keeps uh, criminals in place. And the third use of the law is what John Kelvin spoke about, the law is also to teach us how to live according to God's will. And that's how Christians are to use the law. As we meditate on the law, we're, Calvin says, we're aroused to obedience and are drawn back from that slippery path of transgression. Like the psalmist in Psalm 119, who spoke of the law as being so precious. How I love your law, O oh Lord. It's my meditation, day and night. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. Or as Psalm 1 says, speaking of, of the righteous man, his delight is in the law of God, and he meditates on that, day and night. So the question is, which use of the law does Paul have in mind here in verse 9? When he says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly. Well, obviously, he's talking here about the use of the law, which is, con he's not talking about the uh, use of the law, uh, that, that is the third one, 
for the Christian to obey, but he's referring to the use of the law, which is not for law-abiding citizens who already know how to behave themselves. Uh, thus, he mainly has in view here the first and the second use of, of the law. It's meant for sinners and for those who don't live according to its demands. There's a list. This is a list that's not just sins, but it's a list of specific sinners to whom the law was written. Paul has in mind the second table of the law, that which has to do with our neighbor. Just notice how, this, how all-encompassing it is. The first three pairs in verse 9, uh, where it talks about the uh, lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners and for the ungodly and profane. That introduces a range of sinful behavior. Calvin says here, Paul glances at several classes which include briefly every kind of transgressions. The root is obstinacy and rebellion. And it goes on from there in the next three pairs. Verses, verse 9 uh, speaks about uh, those for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. Someone who strikes to kill his father or mother is directly violating the fifth commandment. You shall not honor, or you shall rather honor your father and your mother. A manslayer is breaking the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Verse 10 continues that the law is written for sexually immoral, the word here for men who practice some homosexuality is the word sodomy and enslavers. The word fornicator is where we get the, the word, it's from rather the word pornos, where we get the word pornography from. A sodomite is a homosexual, which is a punishable crime. Both of these are violations of the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. And then verse continues the list saying that the law is written for kidnappers and slavers. Another way of translating this is man-stealers, which refers to someone stealing people to make them slaves. In other words, it's against the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. And the last two mentioned on this vice list, liars... perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, that is, of course, in violation of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. So after rehearsing God's commandments, Paul, Paul's concluding thought about the law comes as something of a surprise. The law is for any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Which means these sins that are listed are the result of our unsound doctrine. Not only are they against the law, but they're against the gospel, which is for the glory of God. And what this means is that the gospel requires that some can, some that the that, that same conduct of the law that it requires, not as a way to merit grace, but as the appropriate response of gratitude. 
And that's what our catechism is teaching us this afternoon. If you want to know the Lord and know the comfort of the gospel, then you have to know your sin. When we properly know ourselves, when we come to see that we are sinners and unable to keep the commandments, and then we realize we live contrary to its demands. And we do the very opposite of what, our, what this passage says in, in uh, verse 5, where it says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience from a sincere faith. However, however, we're prone to to hate God in our neighbor. As Paul says in Romans 7, I would have known what covetousness was unless the law said, you shall not covet. The commandment which was meant to give life because as it says in the law, he who keeps this will live only brings death. The law is powerless to save us. But this passage even goes beyond what what the catechism is speaking about. Any kind of sin or lawlessness goes not only against the Ten Commandments, it also fails to conform to the gospel and to sound doctrine. The word for sound doctrine is a medical term that has to do with health or being wholesome. Life cannot be separated from doctrine. Unhealthy theology produces unhealthy living. Every sin comes ultimately from a failure to believe rightly about God. Now, it's very important to see this. Paul was not teaching a sound doctrine as if it was an option, he was teaching sound doctrine. The Bible always insists that there is one standard of Christian theology. The standard is the teaching of Christ and his apostles, which are found in the pages of Scripture. And there certainly is, this certainly is very relevant in our time when so much in our culture is against not only the law of God, but it's against sound doctrine and the glorious gospel of our blessed God. We see this, for example, in the disregard for human life. They are completely in favor of assisted suicide. We see it in the rise of infanticide. We see it in the rise of pluralism, where everyone's religion, you know, it's okay. You can worship God, whoever you want, even even though that's not true. Yes, worship him the way you want. But don't insist on Christ's way. The only way. The truth is, God does mind. God does have standards. He does require a holy life. And there we see that society doesn't just want to decriminalize abortion. They don't just want to decriminalize assisted suicide. They don't just want to decriminalize homosexuality, gambling, drugs. They want to decriminalize sin. They don't want to hear about God's standards. And what does the catechism teach us this afternoon? It says to us that if we want to know the comfort of the Lord, 
you need to know your sin. You have to know that sin is the transgression of the law. It teaches us that we can't keep this law perfectly. We have a natural tendency to hate God and our neighbor. We can smile and smile and be nice and still be a villain. We could be the nicest, kindest people in our neighborhood, the one that everyone loves and is, complete, and is someone who you could be completely at home with and still we could be the most evil person of all. We don't have to be a terrorist to be the epitome of evil. You could be of the highest repute, the most respected person on earth and still be the worst of sinners. And that's why when anyone dares to depart from seeking to fulfill the demands of God's law, they end up departing from the gospel. There needs to be a proper preaching of both the law and the gospel. People need to know what the word of God condemns. All these vices that we've looked at today and sinful practices in order for them to appreciate the beauty of the gospel, which is why our catechism is so beautiful. Because it brings out the three S's. Sin, salvation, and service. How about you today? Can you see how vile you are by human nature? Do we see what Paul is getting at here when when he speaks about the need to use the law in a lawful manner? And are we able to admit with the catechism that our deepest of all problems is our own sinfulness. Sin is so deceptive. We can excuse it, though it can never be excused before God. We can minimize it, though we cannot hide from our guilt. We could try to hide it, though it can never be hidden from the sight of God. There's that tendency for us as believers to say that everything is fine. Everything is kind. Meanwhile, we indulge ourselves in questionable questionable practices, even us and our children, and blind our eyes to the disastrous results of our sin. We lower the standards of the law in our lives, and we act as if nothing is wrong. Everything's fine. As if God doesn't see a bit what we do. Even Eve, when she was in perfection, saw that forbidden fruit It seemed so good and desirable, and yet sin took hold of her heart and uh, Adam as well. And they disobeyed the Lord. Sin rarely seems like sin at the beginning, but when it takes hold of us, we're unable to avoid the consequences. And that's why we need grace, we need the gospel, we need the righteousness of Christ through faith. We're not saved by works. But we're saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, for God's glory alone. We can be thankful for that. That's why we also need to hold up each other in prayer. We need to watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. And as Hebrews 3 verse 13 says, exhorting one another daily lest we be Hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We're caught between two places, two opposites, the new nature and the old nature, between the power of sin and the grace of God. So that we cry out with the Apostle Paul, 
O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's, this is what is preached to us again this afternoon. It's a preaching to the graveyard, the graveyard of our hearts. Because without the law, there's no knowledge of sin and there's no need for the gospel. Without knowing our sins, the only comfort in life and in death makes no sense at all. And that's why we need the law preached to us for as long as we live here. For only then can we understand the need for the gospel. We need to be convicted of our sins during our whole lifetime or else we fall into the danger of easy believism. As if it's just a matter of believing the gospel and that's it. We need the whole gospel, the whole truth, the whole hope, which calls us not only for an understanding of the gospel, but how great my sins and misery are, how I'm set free from my sin and misery, and how I can live my life in thankfulness to God. Amen. We'll sing now from supplement number 91.